It's been four years since Australia started its HPV vaccination and all eyes are on the country to find out what's been happening there. A new paper on bmj.com hopes to shed some light on that and I'm joined by three of the authors. Um, first of all, Elizabeth Crow. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi there. Uh, could you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself? Yes, um, I'm a public health doctor, I'm also a PhD student at the University of Queensland. And uh, also we have Julia Brotherton. Hi, Julia. Could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, so I'm um, Dr. Julia Brotherton. I'm a public health physician and a medical epidemiologist, uh, and I work at the Victorian Cytology Service um, down in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, last but not least, we have David Whiteman. Hi, David. Hi there, Duncan. And could you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm also a uh, medical epidemiologist and public health physician. I'm based at the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute, and that's in Brisbane in Australia. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us. Now, Julia, if we start with you, uh, as I said, it's been four years since uh, Australia started its HPV vaccination program. So could you tell us what's going on there in terms of the population that's been vaccinated and screening for cervical cancer? Yes, certainly. So uh, Australia was actually the first country in the world to um, initiate a government, fully government funded um, HPV vaccination program um, and that commenced in 2007. Um, and we're also um, a country that's targeted the widest um, scope of the population with a funded program. So we actually offered the vaccine to all females aged between 12 and 26 years of age um, between 2007 and 2009. Um, and our ongoing program is now vaccinating uh, both girls and boys um, in the first year of high school. So those girls and boys are uh, usually about 12 to 13 years of age. Um, the fortunate thing about our program, I guess, um, in Australia is we're, we're lucky that we actually have a, an overlap between that group who's been offered vaccination and our screening program. Uh, we start cervical screening relatively early in Australia at the moment, so it's recommended from the age of 18 or two years after first sexual intercourse, whichever is later. So you can see that we immediately have this overlap between um, our women aged up to 26 years um, and our screening population. So that's certainly giving us an advantage in terms of measuring the impact um, of the vaccine in our population and that's what our study is based on. Mm. So is Australia the first country where the women who've received vaccination will be then going on to to get screening so that we can actually track the results? Well, well, that's correct. Um, it, it certainly uh, gives us, a, a, I guess, sort of a bit of an advantage that our catch-up program um, went up to such, I guess, relatively old age. Um, you know, in, in the UK, for example, the vaccine program went up to age 18, and that certainly has been the predominant thing that's been happening um, in all the countries that have rolled out HPV vaccine, mostly because um, we know that in most populations, women are becoming sexually active in their late teens. Uh, so in young adult women, the prevalence of HPV is already really high. And so obviously, um, because this vaccine only works prophylactically, um, it's best to get it into your population before most of them are sexually active. So I guess the Australian case is, is relatively unusual, in fact. Okay, great. And how effective has the vaccination program been in terms of rolling it out across the population? 
Well, I think we were quite fortunate in Australia that um, the, the year before the vaccination program started, we actually had uh, Australian of the Year, Professor Ian Fraser, who was involved in the technology that underpins uh, the way the vaccine works. And so it certainly was very high profile, and I think uh, Australian women actually kind of had a bit of sense of pride about the vaccine. Um, we also have a, a sort of high degree of trust with vaccination um, in our country. And um, so, yes, it was very well accepted. We had um, the uptake for three doses in our school programs of um, over 70% um, and over 80% for the first dose. And, and even in our young adult women, we probably had about half of them who received the vaccine, which is really quite impressive for um, an adult vaccination program where traditionally it's very difficult to persuade young people to come into the doctor and have a series of three needles. Um, so we, we feel that we it was quite successful and, and we're already starting to see evidence of the impact of the vaccine within Australia. Great. And um, lastly, about the vaccination program, as you mentioned there, uh, it requires three, three vaccinations. Is there any data about how, how many people managed to complete the, uh, the entire course? Yeah, OK. So, so we know we certainly um, have quite a disparity uh, between uh, the number of people who've had at least one dose and uh, who've completed three. And that's one of our biggest challenges, I think, is to try and get everyone to get all the way through those that series of three doses, given that the first and last dose are six months apart. Um, and we actually have a bit of a gap uh, in our school program of in the order of um, 10 to 15% uh, difference between the first and third dose. Um, so I guess there's been a lot of interest both within Australia and internationally as to whether we could actually implement a program with a, uh, either one or two doses because that would certainly um, give us a better coverage. Um, and there's a lot of research going on into that area at the moment. But our program was rolled out with the traditional schedule, which is three doses um, at zero two and six months. Now Beth, if we move over to you, um, what you've done is take data from two registries uh, which have been uh, linked together um, and and look to see uh, you know, what, what effect HPV has had. So for a start, um, how good is the data, sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase that. So for a start, what are the two registries and how good are the data in them? Okay, so we wanted to measure the effectiveness of both full and partial courses of the vaccine in protecting against cervical abnormalities in a population setting. And one of the most efficient ways of obtaining data on a large number of women was to use population-based registers. So we used extracts from the Queensland Health pap smear register and the HPV vaccination register, which were linked together and we obtained an anonymized linked data set, so we were able to determine the vaccination status of all women on the pap smear register. In terms of how good the data are, data from both the, both the registers are largely complete. Um, we're aware of some under-reporting um, to the vaccination register, but missing data is probably likely to be non-differential. And we did look at this in sensitivity analyses and found that it didn't make any difference to our results. So you took the data um, and analysed it and all your methods are obviously in the paper for people to look at uh, fully. But just um, very briefly, what did you do and then what did you find when you, when you looked at it? 
Okay, so in summary, we did a case control analysis on the linked data set amongst women who were 12 to 26 years old who'd been vaccine eligible and had attended for at least one cervical screen during the study period, which was 2007 to 2011. So we had two case groups. High-grade cases were women with histologically confirmed high-grade cervical abnormalities. Other cases were women with any other abnormalities, and controls were women who only had normal cytology results throughout the study period. Does your data include anything on adverse outcomes from vaccination or, or anything about uh, intergenital warts, which um, the quadrivalent vaccine also protects from? No, we, we weren't able to look at adverse events from the, the um, data sets that we had or genital warts. So the, the main outcome for this study was cervical abnormalities. And what counted as a high-grade abnormality? High-grade cases were women with histologically confirmed high-grade cervical abnormalities. And they included um, squamous abnormalities, which were cervical intraepithelial neoplasia 2 or 3 or squamous cell carcinoma and endocervical abnormalities, which included um, adenocarcinoma. And what did you find in these groups? So um, what we found was that um, women in the two case groups were less likely to have been vaccinated than controls, i.e. women with no abnormalities, as, as we expected. Um, so in women who received three doses of the vaccine, we estimated vaccine effectiveness to be 46% against high-grade abnormalities, and 34% against other abnormalities. We also found significant but less protection in women who received two doses. So we estimated two-dose effectiveness to be 21% against both high-grade and other abnormalities. And we didn't see any significant protection from one dose. So uh, we don't expect there to be exactly the same impact across all different types of abnormalities. So um, obviously people will be aware that the HPV vaccines only protect against a certain number of HPV types and the really important ones are 16 and 18 which um, cause about 70 to 80% of cervical cancers. However, the low-grade abnormalities that we see on pap tests, we now know they really just represent a, an acute infection. And so they can be caused by any of the 40 HPV types. Um, however, HPV-16 is still the most common um, cause of these abnormalities, um, whereas for the high-grade lesions, uh, again, we see a predominance of 16 and 18, but they probably cause only about half of the lesions with the other um, cancer-causing types taking up the remaining share. So when we think about what we expect to see in terms of vaccine impact, we expect to see actually a smaller impact on, on the low grades and a moderate impact on the high grades. And then hopefully um, in the next decade, we'll start to see this impact on cervical cancers that we're, we're expecting should be in the realm of 70 to 80% protection. And that's just because the higher grade disease, the more likely it is to be caused by the 16 and 18 types that are covered by the vaccine. There was a difference in the number needed to vaccinate to prevent high-grade abnormalities between women who had previously been screened and, and those who hadn't. So what's going on there? The number needed to vaccinate is a, uh, is a composite measure uh, and it integrates both the incidence of the disease as well as the vaccine effectiveness. So what you're seeing in, in the uh, different number needed to vaccinate in these two groups is that in the older women who've, uh, who have had prior screens, 
the incidence of these uh, high-grade lesions is considerably higher, much, much higher than in the much younger women who haven't uh, had a prior screen. So even though the, the individual effectiveness on the individual uh, woman is less, when you integrate the population incidence as well, you're getting more value from the vaccine at a, at a population level. And so that's, that's what that's demonstrating there. And David, does that have any effect on the decision about which groups to actually vaccinate? Does it imply that perhaps, you know, the, the catch-up programme that's in Australia up to 26 uh, was the right decision to make? Well, that's a fairly political uh, sort of a question, I guess, and there are uh, policy implications around this. Um, I mean, it, it would be one consideration, I guess, but uh, the rollout of a vaccine program uh, has a lot of components to it and uh, includes accessibility and, and uptake. But look, I might actually refer that to Julia. This is really uh, her stock in trade and, and she's rather the, the policy uh, cutting edge there. So if I could handball that across to Julia. Yeah, look, I think uh, the reason that Australia's been one of the only countries that in vaccinating women, uh, you know, right up into their mid-twenties was a, a disconcern that many women will already have been exposed and, and, and certainly all the modelling uh, that's done before we make these decisions about vaccine programs has suggested that you really get your maximum benefit if you're getting this vaccine into your population who are largely sexually naive. Um, I think we need to, do, to put our study in context as well, though. I think... Um, what we're seeing, these results now, are really still quite early results and we will actually see an improvement in vaccine efficacy over time. Um, and I think what we're going to see is a lot more disease avoided uh, in the young girls than we're actually seeing um, avoided in these mid-adult women um, who uh, many of whom have, have already had um, an infection. I think it is fair to say, though, that um, since we designed these programs, we have learned a lot more about how this vaccine works. Um, and in particular, there's been a very interesting analysis out of the trials which has shown that, in fact, women who are treated for these high-grade lesions um, do have a, a reduced risk of recurrence if they receive the HPV vaccine. And, and, and that's been shown in the trials. It's also been shown in one um, non-randomised study um, of women who are treated for these high-grade CIN3 lesions that receiving the HPV vaccine does reduce their risk of recurrence. Now, this might seem counterintuitive because we've been saying, well, the vaccine doesn't actually prevent lesions that are already there, but what it does seem to do really well through the high antibodies is protect um, women against reinfection. So if they've already got a lesion in their cervix that might be um, spreading HPV back to their partner who then spreads it back to them and, and, and it obviously can infect other areas of, of their epithelial um, genital tract, um, the vaccine does protect them against this. And, and in a way, you can see that this group of women are, in fact, the very women you want to reach. These are the women who, whose body, for whatever reason, their own immune system is not very good at clearing HPV. And these are the women who are actually at risk of high-grade disease and, and perhaps cancer. So um, I think we are starting to rethink... Um, you know, whether in fact it might be wise to offer women who've had um, high-grade treatment the vaccine because the vaccine can provide um, protection. And I, I um, personally think we're, start, we're seeing a little bit of that effect in this analysis, and that's why um, it is unexpectedly um, beneficial in that group, I think. Mm. And how long would you think it'll be before we can actually um, test that 
empirically, as it were, in another study uh, much like the one you've done already? Yeah, look, I think we know from looking at the trial data that you, you sort of have a, a washout period of probably at least three or four years um, until you're starting to see your sort of incidence curves of lesions between your vaccinated and unvaccinated separate. So I think you'll find that the study data that we've looked at here in the first four years, you are having disease from um, lesions that were already there or infections that were already there. I think um, if we take even the next five-year period, we should have a pretty good um, idea uh, amongst those groups of women who have now aged up into our screening program but who were vaccinated when they were sexually naive at school. Um, and, and, you know, the, the study data that we've analysed here um, went um, up to four years. We're now um, in year eight of our program um, coming into two Yes, the eighth year of our program coming into 2014. Um, so certainly, you know, once we get the screening data into all our registries um, by the end of this year, it would be great to repeat this study and, and really see how we're tracking. So given the results of, of your study, um, does that have any implications for Australia's screening program? Well, we certainly know from... Um, our cervical screening data that we are seeing a decline in these high-grade abnormalities in the population overall of, of young women. So first of all, we, we uh, observed it in those under 20. Um, in the last couple of years, we're now seeing it in the 20 to 24-year-old age group with these rates of abnormalities coming down. And what this present study does is really shows that it is definitely due to the vaccine. Um, this has really quite large implications uh, for cervical screening programs, which um, in Australia at the moment is done um, using conventional cytology, so pap smear testing. Um, and the, the problem is, obviously, once you move into a low-prevalence environment, so there's less chance of an individual woman or a woman in the population actually having the disease you're looking for, uh, the positive predictive value of, of your screening actually falls quite precipitously. Uh, and this actually means that more of the cases that you investigate as, as having a suspicious pap test will turn out to be negative um, than actually positive. So you actually uh, end up you know, doing a lot of... Um, over-diagnostic testing and, and the potential to cause harm through screening in that situation is quite real. So Australia, um, in line with many other countries who have implemented HPV vaccination, is actually currently um, undergoing a process of renewing our program and we're currently looking at all the evidence to work out what the, the best screening strategy is going to be uh, in the post-vaccination era. Um, so I think at the very least we're going to be uh, looking at raising our screening age um, in Australia and, and widening the, uh, the interval. At the moment we, we do pap testing every two years, which is quite intensive uh, and probably unnecessarily so. Um, but I think the real promise is, is to start using primary HPV DNA uh, testing as a screening uh, tool. And this basically means collecting a sample from the woman's cervix and testing it to see if she's got those high-risk HPV DNA types. And the great thing about that is it tells us straight away what the woman's risk is right now. And it doesn't really matter if she's been previously vaccinated or not. Um, the test can be applied equally to vaccinated and unvaccinated women. And uh, randomised trials that have been done over the last five to ten years have really now shown that, um, you know, this this way of screening is a lot more sensitive. You actually prevent um, CIN from developing and, and, um, and one study from India has actually shown it can prevent cancers from developing at, at a population level using HPV DNA testing as opposed to cytology testing. 
so I think that's where probably screening is going to move to in the future. Um, and, and the best news for women about that is if you have a negative test, so if you don't have a high-risk HPV DNA test, um, it seems like it's safe for you to go away for at least five years. Your risk of having a high-grade uh, lesion developing that time is very small um, and you're a lot safer after a negative HPV DNA test in terms of which thing you are after a negative PAP test. So I can uh, you know, hear the women of the world rejoicing about that particular mm -hmm. piece of news that um, the screening interval might um, lengthen as well um, if HPV DNA testing becomes part of um, our screening programs. And presumably if, uh, if you're, you test negative for the, um, the, the high risk uh, versions of HPV then would that make you eligible for uh, for vaccination and to, you know, uh, protect in the future? Yes, it's, that's that's a really interesting point. That's actually um, sort of a, a an idea that has been floated is that you know you get women at their first screen and if they haven't been vaccinated and you and they don't have disease then and there, it is probably. Um, would be an opportunity and again this is part of the rethinking that we're doing now that we learn more about the efficacy of the vaccines. I guess the other breakthrough that may change everything all over again is um, if we do see success with the um, next generation of vaccines which promise to cover even more types um, and it's quite possible that you know if you're able to give a multivalent HPV vaccine that protectively affects you against the vast majority of cancer causing types, you won't need screening. Um, so I, I think we're all waiting with beta breath for, for those to come into play and, and promise again to change um, what we're doing right now in terms of cervical screening. That was Elizabeth Crow, Julia Brotherton and David Whiteman talking about HPV vaccination and cervical cancer screening in Australia. The paper we've discussed today is available for free on bmj.com. Links from the podcast page.